so apropos that you bring that up about your, your husband and salvation, because the, the lesson today is about Pilate and Herod reflecting on Jesus. Pilate and Herod reflecting on Jesus. And this is important. Because what you will see here as we study this is that both Pilate and Herod, as they saw Jesus, were impressed by Jesus. Um, and, and they saw something that they had never seen before. It was clear that Jesus represented uh, an authority uh, and, and integrity, the likes of which they had never seen before. And yet despite that, Neither of them come ultimately to accept Jesus as who he is, as, as the son of God. And this is what can happen to many people, even in this world today, where you will hear people say, well, I think Jesus was a fine man. I think he was a great prophet. I think he did a lot of good things. Uh, uh, but they don't then understand that he's the son of God. Uh, and so all those things are nice, but none of them matter. None of them are, are of any consequence until you come to understand that he is the son of God, that without him there is no salvation. So as we begin this, in John uh, verse chapter 18, 38, uh, Pilate speaks to Jesus, uh, and how ironic it is, because if follow along with me. Let's begin then with verse 37, John 18, verse 37. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you are right in saying I am a king. In fact, for this reason, uh, I was born, and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Underline that. Testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? Pilate asked. Oh, how poignant, huh? What is truth? Pilate asked. With this, he went out again to the Jews and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. What is truth? How's that? The central essence of our life. What is truth? Well, I can give you that answer. The truth is that Jesus Christ is the son of God who came to this world to save us from our sins. That is the truth. That is the ultimate truth. So if anybody ever says to you, what is really the truth in this world, that's the truth. That's the ultimate truth. Uh, and so here, the ultimate truth here is that Jesus is going to be examined by the highest governmental authorities available at that time, both by Pilate and Herod. And in both of those cases, he will be found innocent, blameless, without any sin. And that will conform, and this is how God does this, because God allows the earthly authorities to weigh and conclude, and in their conclusion, you'll see in a number of ways, they say he is without fault. He is innocent. He is blameless. Uh, and so this confirms, if you would, the scripture by turning to Exodus chapter 12. And this is as the Jews are leaving Egypt. Um, and so they are told now uh, about the Passover feast that God has spared them. And, there's, and, and uh, from, from annihilation, as the firstborn of the Egyptian will be wiped out. And so now they're told what to do for the first Passover. Exodus chapter 12, verse 5. The animals you choose, and these are the animals you choose in order to do the sacrifice. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect. And you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Without 
without defect, without blemish. They had to be perfect in every way. It was a portent of what Jesus would bring 1,500 years later, without blame. And so that's exactly what God decreed, and that's exactly how Jesus lived. Listen, as you come to understand this, you have to step back uh, and, and see this whole picture. We have said that everything in the Old Testament was a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. The entire Bible is written to point the direction to Jesus Christ from Genesis to Revelation, all the way through pointing Jesus, Jesus, Son of God, coming. And so as this message is articulated, even here, as the Jews are leaving Egypt 1,500 years before the birth of Christ, even then you're seeing the foreshadowing of the Passover lamb, perfect without blemish. And now you're reading. You're seeing Jesus now being brought up before the governmental authorities. And as he's being brought up on the governmental authorities, everyone concludes he is blameless. He is without blemish. And so Jesus had a public ministry for three years, meaning for three years of his life, he's publicly available for inspection. And no one during those three years found anything uh, amiss with him. Turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verse 29. This is what John the Baptist said about Jesus when he saw him. Verse 29, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There it is. There it is. Uh, as God had given John the prophetic message. The Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So from that point on, as the Lord moved publicly amongst all types of people, no one could find fault with him in any way. No one could find sin. No one could find a blemish. And now, basically, we're going to hear the Roman procurator, Pilate. We're going to hear Herod, uh, uh, also a, a Roman delegate and appointed authority. Both, both, despite the opposition from the Jewish elite who want Jesus dead, both of them are going to say a number of times he's innocent. Pilate, as a matter of fact, declares Jesus innocent three separate times. Now think about that. That's three separate times over a period of, I would say, 12 hours. Three separate times. First at the conclusion of the official Roman trial. Uh, in that trial, Jesus had been accused of making himself a king. Christ is a king. Thus, he's an enemy of Caesar. That's, that's what they postulated at the Jewish authority. Uh, Pilate found the charge unwarranted and actually declared, I find no basis uh, for a charge against him. I find no basis. The second declaration of Jesus' innocence was after Pilate had sent Jesus to Herod and had received him back. Uh, and there he says, look, I am bringing him out to let you know again that I find no basis for a charge against him. Number two. Then the last occasion was after Pilate had caused Jesus to be flogged. He, he, he had him flogged thinking that by beating him, the crowd would be abated. They would let Jesus go. Uh, and, and Pilate declared, I find no basis for a charge against him. Again, three times the leaders of the, of the people, the Jewish leaders, were insistent, crucify him, crucify him. And so it was, it was as if as God's blameless lamb, Blameless lamb going to the cross, just like the Passover lamb. And I want you to reflect on this. This is Passover week that this is happening. 
Don't you see how God orchestrates everything? I mean, the more and more that you study Scripture, you just see God, God interweaving all of the players to, to put together the message that he wants. It's Passover week. They're, they're preparing for the Passover. Don't you think that in their hearts they would have thought, wait a minute, wait a minute, this is Passover. The blameless lamb, this guy who claims to be the Messiah, nobody knows anything wrong that he's done. He's done all these miracles. Wouldn't you think? Wouldn't you think? But you see what happens when Satan obstructs your mind and your heart. You understand? That's why, you know, some people will never get the message. They will never get the message. We still keep giving it to them, but they'll never get the message. And so it's, it's painful for us as we understand this is why Jesus died. Now, as we examine this, and we conclude that both the uh, governmental authorities found him to be innocent. There's another party that found him to be innocent, which is an important voice, and that is the voice of Judas Iscariot. Uh, and why do I say this? Well, after the betrayal, after Judas betrayed uh, Jesus, turn to Matthew 27. Matthew 27, verse 3. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 silver coins to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. I have betrayed innocent blood. He is innocent. He did nothing. So there you have the very betrayer of Christ indicating that I find no fault for him. Now, it's just amazing as you drill down in history and you see this. Um, and you see, we, we didn't talk too much about Herod. We've talked about Pilate. But we know that Herod uh, Antipas was the son of Herod the Great. Uh, and Herod the Great was not great. He was despicable. You know that he was the one who ordered that all infants in Bethlehem two years old or younger be executed when they were looking for Jesus. Uh, and so he was a despicable a person, and you know that the wise men came uh, effectively from Iraq now, uh, but came to worship the baby Jesus, uh, and they went into Herod to ask him where he was found. Well, let me give you a side note. You may be wondering, how, why did the wise men come? I know they saw a star, but how did that all come? Well, the wise men were, were basically in the line of Daniel, because Daniel had been brought to, to uh, Babylon, which was taken over, and all of that was in Iraq. And they had studied over the years. This is a group that continued. And they were in the line of Daniel. And so they studied the stars. They studied astronomy. They read, they read the prophecies. They knew what Daniel had written. Daniel had written that the Messiah would come on or about this period of time. And so if you made a calculation based on what Daniel had said, and you started the count from the, from the uh, rebuild of the temple, the temple, it would have brought you uh, to Israel just about the time of Jesus' birth. If you started the count from the time that uh, the, the walls were rebuilt in Jerusalem, then it would have brought you uh, to Jerusalem this week, the week of Passover. How about that? How about that? As God, again, is directing everything. And so here they come, and, and Herod uh, uh, directs them. <laughs> they want to know, where is the king? And he says, well, he asks his wise men, and they said, Bethlehem. 
That's what the scripture tells us. How about that? They knew, and yet they didn't know. They knew the word, but they didn't understand the word in their heart. Uh, and so uh, now when Herod later in life, okay, later in life when he is told about Jesus preaching and the powerful works of Jesus, Herod imagines that it is John the Baptist resurrected from the dead. How about that? Why do I say that? Well, first of all, he killed him. All right, he had him beheaded. Turn to Matthew 14. Matthew 14, verse 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus. And he said to his attendants, this is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work in him. How about that? This will, so so he, he, he executes John the Baptist. He has him beheaded, and yet he hears about what Jesus is doing, all the miracles, and he's convicted about that, and so he, he believes that it's some supernatural force that John the Baptist is raised from the dead. Well, Jesus had had some contact with Herod. Uh, and it, if take a look at Luke 13, verse 31. At that time, some Pharisees came to, to Jesus and said to him, leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. Jesus replied, go tell that fox. I will drive out demons and heal people today and tomorrow, and on the third day I will reach my goal. In any case, I must keep going today and tomorrow, and the next day for surely no prophet can die outside of Jerusalem. What does this all mean? It means this. Jesus understood his destiny. He was not fearful day to day as to what would come to him because he knew on the third day he had to be resurrected from the grave. He knew he had to die on the cross. And to me, this is a confirmation of God's will in your life. All right? When you're concerned about the issues of your life, when you're concerned about the problems that you're having, I want you to have this picture that Jesus is holding you in his hand, that God the Father is holding you in his hand. And nothing will happen to you that is not within the will of God. Can I get an amen? Amen. Let's understand that. Nothing. And so even as you're facing death, or even as your family is facing death, as you submit to God, and I, I spoke to a dear brother yesterday about this issue, that the key is submission. The key is submission, bowing in submission to God, meaning it's your God, you lead me, you direct me, I will follow you, I will bow to you, and I will understand that it is all within your will. And so as you understand this, you see this in Jesus in every way. Not fearful of Herod. You go tell that fox. I'm going to continue to preach. I'm going to continue to do miracles. And on the third day, on the third day, I will defeat death once and for all, for all humanity. And so what an incredible thing. And so now, now Herod has sent Jesus. It's his first time to see Jesus in person. He's been very anxious to see him. Um, and so, it, you know, as we read here, it tells us that Herod was greatly pleased because for a long time he'd been waiting to see Jesus. And from what he had heard about him, he hoped to, to see him perform some miracles. Hey, Jesus, how about some parlor tricks? Can you walk on some water here? You know, can you feed, you know, a couple thousand people with this loaf of bread? Let me see you do it. Let me see you do it. And, of course, God disdains it. God doesn't do anything at the will and beck and call of man. All right, God, God disdains that kind of conduct. And so Jesus never answered him. 
Herod may have had a lot of questions. Jesus had, didn't answer them once. Uh, and you see it. And so then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed him, dressed him in a gown and a robe, and they sent him back uh, to Pilate. But this account tells us much about Herod. For one thing, it tells us that Herod was aware of much that was going on in his province. He knew about it. Uh, we also know that we are told that we had heard, he had heard a lot about Jesus. He hoped him perform, to see him perform some miracles. How did Herod know all this about Jesus? I'll tell you why. Because within his household, his chief steward was a man called Chuzas. And Chuzas' wife was a woman named Joanna. And many of you may never have heard of Joanna. But Joanna was part of the traveling group of women that traveled regularly with Jesus for three years. How about that? That this woman, the wife of the steward of Herod's household, is traveling with Jesus and was paying the expenses, helping to defray the expenses of Jesus and the apostles, and traveled with him regularly. And so there it is. The chief steward of the house of Herod, his wife, is traveling with Jesus. And so clearly, clearly, the word about Jesus had, had matriculated back into Herod's household. Uh, and it's, to me, it's, it's just amazing how God, uh, God authorizes this um, and does this. If you have a question about this, look at Luke chapter 8. You know, it's funny. A lot of these things... Uh, I had not remembered growing up, if I even knew it. Um, and as I go back, I always bounce this off of Linda. And Linda says to me, Where, what Bible are you reading? <laughs> what Bible are you reading? Luke chapter 8, uh, verse 1. After this, Jesus traveled about from one town in the village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases, Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out, Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household, uh, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. Ladies, you are called to be great in the kingdom of God, and I repudiate any church that doesn't put you on that kind of exalted podium. You have full equality with men. God created you to be used in the kingdom of God. And you see it here at the very beginning of the New Testament church that they are traveling with Jesus and helping to support them from their own means. Can we get an amen on that? This irks me, all right? And so that's why when I see it, I want to make sure I get it out. Is that you say it, and you, and you preach it to other people. You preach it to other people, okay? Because unfortunately, that's not universally said, all right? And you can quote me if you want, all right? And so Herod is interested, but it's only an idle curiosity, an idle curiosity. And that's sometimes what we face in the world. People may have their, their minds tickled, their fancy tickled, uh, and, and they'll, they'll have some thoughts about Jesus, but nobody drills down. They don't drill down. They don't drill down. And so here's the point of all this. There is no true approach 
to God without a painful awareness of one's ongoing open sin. You cannot come to God. You cannot speak to God unless you come to God with an understanding of your sinful nature, the fact that you are in desperate need of, of repentance. This is critical. This is critical. And why is this? It is because God is holy. Now, the problem with us is that none of us truly in our human nature really understands the holiness of God. And if you listened yesterday to my radio broadcast, you know I spoke about this very issue, the holiness of God. We cannot approach God. We cannot approach God until we have a broken, repentant spirit. And he sees your heart. It's not the words. It's not your words that matter. It's your heart. Is your heart broken? Uh, do you recognize that you need, you're in desperate need of a Savior? Uh, and, and the proof of how this is, to understand the holiness of God, is in your, in your t- spare time, go back and read Leviticus 16. Because that was the first day of atonement, when God laid out what it was for the high priest to come in into the Holy of Holies and to worship God and to ask atonement for the people. What did he have to do? When you read what the high priest had to do, you'll pull your hair out. Bloodletting after bloodletting, sacrifice after sacrifice, ritual burning after ritual burning, scapegoats being sent out into the desert, all of that so that on that one day, once a year, the high priest, after he purged himself ritually and had his clothing torn and put on uh, the proper clothing, could walk into the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was, where God sat between the two cherubim perched on the Ark of the Covenant and pray and ask for forgiveness of sin for all of the Jewish people. And if he did not prepare himself properly, he would be struck dead. And there are plenty of examples in Scripture where the high priests went in inappropriately and were struck dead. And if they were struck dead, how would you know they were struck dead? because they would put bells on their robes and they tie a rope around them so that all of a sudden, if they didn't hear the bells tinkling, that meant, "Uh uh-oh, this didn't go too well. We can't go in and get him. We'll drag his corpse out by a rope, okay? You understand we're not kidding around. This is not gamesmanship. This is a holy, sacred, sacrosanct God. And now, you know, you want to approach him? You have to approach him in a, in a spirit of brokenness and understand this. Uh, and so you understand this, and you see it even in the Garden of Eden, as I mentioned it in the beginning, that when Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden, and the Garden of Eden most likely was, was uh, uh, an early representation of heaven on earth. It was probably what the new Jerusalem will look like. When, when this earth, when this world, at the end, when Jesus comes back and the new Jerusalem will come and be in this world, in heaven. That heaven will be in this world. It'll be recreated as the new Jerusalem. And there it was, right there in the Garden of Eden. There's no death in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve were destined to live forever. But they sinned. They did the one thing God warned them not to do. And so I want you to see what happens when you sin. Look at Genesis chapter 3, understanding the issue of repentance. And that's why I'm giving you this, understanding the need for repentance, which you didn't see with Pilate and Herod. Genesis chapter 3, 
Uh, and now God, God looks for uh, Adam and Eve. They've sinned. Verse 8, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Can you just imagine this? You, you are the first man, the first woman are in the first place where God is there with them, walking with them. They're alive in this world, and God is walking in this garden. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Why did they hide? Because they had sinned. You understand? They had sinned. The hiding indicated we are broken. We are broken. We have, we have gone against you, God. We have sinned, all right? But the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. You're naked, and know you're naked because you had sinned. You had no problem with nakedness before, but it's because you ate of that tree, and your mind was expanded in a way that God warned you not to, that now you understood uh, who you were, and now you're hiding from me. Uh, and so you understand this, this whole point. And so there is an example of understanding the impact of sin. We know we sin, Father. We're hiding from you, but you can't hide from God. You can't hide from God. I don't care who you are, whether you're saved or on the road to salvation or a pagan who will never save, you cannot hide from God. All right? And that's the message here. Uh, and so clearly, clearly, Herod and Pilate have front row seats. And so they understand uh, w- what Jesus is doing. Certainly Herod understood uh, the, the, uh, what, what John the Baptist was about. Uh, and he understood the fact that, that John the Baptist spoke about Jesus and the immortality immor- of life. And yet none of it came to convict him of his sin. And if you're not convicted of your sin, you're not going to be saved. It's that simple, okay? It's that simple. If you're not convicted of your sin, you will not be saved. And so here's the point of all this. You cannot treat God lightly. You cannot mock him. Uh, You must be serious about your encounter with God. This is what God requires of us. Uh, and if you will not do that, if you do not come to God seriously, then, then your religious sensibilities will decline. Meaning what? Your conscience will not be pricked because you could sit there like Pilate and like Herod, knowing all full well what Jesus was about, even to the extent that you have an insider in the house of Jesus traveling with him, and yet still your religious sensibilities aren't pricked. Because as time goes by and you don't come to Jesus Christ, uh, you get dull and dull and dull until you cannot reach out and you cannot repent of your sin. You know, I put in, your, in the outline for you Oswald Chambers' statement. Conviction of sin, point 13. Conviction of sin is one of the rarest things that ever strikes a man. It is the threshold of an understanding of God. Jesus Christ said that when the Holy Spirit came, he would convict of sin. And when the Holy Spirit rouses the conscience and brings him into the presence of God, it is not his relationship with men that bother him, but his relationship with God. Do you understand that? When you are truly convicted of the Holy Spirit, you're not being convicted about issues with other men and other human beings. It's your relationship with God. That's what it is. That's what the Holy Spirit does. 
And so the Holy Spirit never encourages our carnal nature, the flesh. Uh, the truth is our carnal nature must die. We must die to this self. We must die to this world. We are wicked people. Sorry to break it to you. Okay? I know you have a winsome personality. I know you got a lot of friends. But I got to break it to you. God knows you are wicked. You can't go into the holy of holies. You can't do that. All right? But now that you've accepted Jesus Christ, that the blood of Jesus has poured over you, that he has saved you, yes, you can go into the holy of holies. You go in a hundred times a day as you pray with him and he intervenes with you. What a great gift God has given us. I mean, really. And so here's the point. What is the truth? The truth is that man is evil, that we are sinful, that God is the creator, that Jesus Christ is the son of God, that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, that unless you accept Jesus as the only way that you are washed, you will never come into the presence of God. Can I get an amen on that? All right. I mean, it's that simple. It's that simple. And you don't have to be a theologian. You don't have to study theology 101 or 201 or 301 or 401. You don't need any of that. All you need is to understand the nature of yourself and that you need to come before the presence of God in a spirit of brokenness and conviction and ask God to wash you and to, and to help you and to deliver you. And in that moment, you are saved. The Holy Spirit seals you. And I said it before, it's not about baptism. It's not about communion. It's not about any other series of rituals that I, I understand. I believe in baptism. I believe in communion. But you are saved when you give Jesus Christ your heart and you bow in conviction to the throne and say, Lord, I need you. I need a Savior. I am lost without you. That's the message of God. And you don't have to sit there and, and have people re recite 20 verses. Or you don't have to have somebody get up and give a testimony of their depraved past. Tell me, what did you do? Oh, bad. Oh, bad, 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 bad. That's bad. I often think that some of that is spiritual titillation. All right? Spiritual titillation. You don't need that. All you need is the utmost, most humble recitation of God, I am lost. I am a sinner. Save me. Wash me with the blood of your son. When you do that, you are saved. You are saved forever. Nobody, no force, no principality, no demon will ever take you out of the hand of God. Amen? Amen. I'll see you in three weeks. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, Father, I thank you for Jesus. I thank you for saving us. I thank you for these words, Lord. I thank you for this message that uplifts us and gives us eternal hope as we understand who we are and what you are, Father. Deliver us from our evil ways. Wash us, Father, in your, in your blood, in the blood of Jesus Christ. Help us, Father, to become the kind of Christians you want us to be, day by day and walking. And just as importantly, deliver this message to a world that is lost. Strengthen us, Father, and give us courage that we can do this very thing. Protect our people 
every day for the next three weeks, Lord, and protect us as we travel and bring us back safely to continue to celebrate you and celebrate the life of Jesus. We put all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. God bless you. God bless you.